Good morning. <clears throat> you can open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> and let me go ahead and apologize. You're going to hear a lot of strange noises coming out of my throat uh, this morning. And so I'll try not to get too deep into the microphone to hear those unpleasant sounds. Um, but we are still recovering um, <clears throat> from the crud, uh, as many of us have had it. Uh, if you didn't know, all three of your elders have been back and forth fighting it uh, for a couple weeks. And uh, Jay out this morning. <clears throat> but uh, thankful to be here, and uh, we're not going to miss starting the book of Mark, man. Uh, so I got my tissues, I got my cough drops, we're going to get through it together, amen? See, that's where I need to back away. I apologize. <clears throat> that was unpleasant. Mark chapter 1, speaking of preaching, <clears throat> which I love to preach um, to you, uh, <clears throat> but I want to thank um, Jack for preaching last Sunday, um, giving us an overview of the apostles. Uh, he will, Lord willing... Uh, continue that study later on in the Gospel of Mark when we get to the section on uh, Jesus's choice and calling those men, <clears throat> and uh, he'll he'll do some more preaching for us and Jay as well. We're trying to uh, share the pulpit a little bit more um, uh, intentionally, and so I plan to preach for four weeks, and then on that fifth Sunday, uh, someone else will be preaching, uh, Jay or Jack or maybe some of you someday. Uh, we long to uh, build a healthy culture of preachers in our congregation, and um, we want uh, men preaching the word, don't we, Alicia? Um, so we want that to be normal among us, and uh, just want you to know that's kind of our pattern uh, for the book of Mark and just the preaching ministry in general. Um, but we're going to look now to Mark chapter 1, <clears throat> and I'm thankful for our elders, man. I mean, to let's use them. Let's use them, Right. Um, praise the Lord that we have uh, so many capable preachers in our congregation. Um, Mark chapter 1, I'll invite you to stand out of reverence and respect for the word of the Lord. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. There should be a pew Bible in front of you if you don't have one. Um, and we'll read all the way through chap uh, verse 8 of chapter 1. <clears throat> when I'm done reading, I'll say this is God's word if you agree. Please say together, thanks be to God. In the beginning, <clears throat> sorry, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, 
It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. Whether you're a nerd or not, everyone knows what I just quoted. And you didn't even need the music. You know, I thought that would be a little too theatrical if I added the, the ba ba <coughs> ba da da da. So <coughs> you see the starry background, you see the yellow words scrolling down in your mind right now. One of the most epic beginnings in all of cinematic history. What am I talking about? Star Wars. And I'm not even a big Star Wars fan. I didn't watch any of the movies until college. And to be honest, I don't think I've watched any of the movies since college. But whether you like them or not, the people have spoken and they say that Star Wars is awesome. There are a total of 11 live action Star Wars movies adding up to a whopping 25 hours and 7 minutes of screen time. How can you have that many sequels and still be successful? Someone has attempted to watch them all back to back, I'm sure. <clears throat> it is a story of intergalactic warfare, humans, aliens, and robots traveling from planet to planet in various kinds of spacecrafts, trying to protect the motherland from enemy forces. And the most powerful in these galaxies are those who have learned the secret ways of the Force, which is an energy field created by all living life that binds the galaxy together. The Force is strong with this one, they say. It's a story of tragedy, love, action, redemption, comedy, and heroism. It's one that everybody is familiar with. Of course, there's another story that took place a long time ago in a galaxy not so far away. We turn to the Gospel of Mark to read the beginning of this epic unfolding that all history and mankind knows about and refers to as the Gospel. The Gospel. And unlike the Star Wars series, this story is absolutely true. And there's no greater story than this story. Mankind is still marveling over the main character and his heroism to this day. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. While the storyline of the gospel is nothing like Star Wars, don't be worried, I'm not going to try to compare the gospel to Star Wars to the whole rest of my sermon. <clears throat> but they do share similar beginnings. They skip the introductions, or at least Mark does, right? There's no, hey, my name's Mark, and this is why I'm writing to you. There's no explanation. The credits just start rolling. You're in it, and you're immediately hooked. Where is this going? What's happening? Where am I? There's no purpose statement, no explanation. Ready or not, here we come, and we're hooked. I think it would be fun if we read verse 1 together out loud. Can we do that? Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as told by someone named Mark. This is one of four books in the New Testament we refer to as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
The first three are often called synoptic gospels, which means same or similar. John, the fourth gospel, of course, um, is a little different, putting emphasis on some different things. But all four of them have the same job and the same purpose. They are written to be like a newspaper. They're just telling us what happened, right? This is what took place. They are reporters. They are telling the true and historical events that took place when Jesus walked the earth, leading up to his death and resurrection. This is not their interpretation of those events or an elaborate storytelling of how it took place. This is just what happened. No embellishment, no stretching of the truth, just the gospel. And these period, or these events are undebated by any external writings from their own time period. In other words, we have no external sources saying, nope, didn't happen. We have plenty of those today, don't we? But from their time period, we have not a single source that says, that ain't how it happened. That ain't how it went down. There were no objections to these four gospel records. All of them were written within about 30-year time period, which means that there were still living eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry that would have read these accounts. And those eyewitnesses never said, I got to get out my pen and write an anti-mark, because that ain't how it happened. We don't have an anti-mark. Because nobody said, that ain't it. These are true words. These are true accounts. The Gospel of Mark, like all books of the Bible, is rooted in historical manuscripts that were breathed out by God through the author's pen, of which we have thousands and thousands of copies, and these texts portray accurate and reliable truths about the Messiah. I am not a textual critic or a scholar of manuscripts. But I can tell you 2,000 years later, the work has been done and the deal is sealed. It's true. It's real. The case is closed. This is history. And what's unique about this gospel is that it's written by Mark, who was not an apostle. So we ask the question, how did Mark know all this stuff? If he wasn't there in all those private conversations between Jesus and his disciples. The earliest church leaders from the first and second century have affirmed that Mark had some help. Uh, So church history um, would affirm that there was another guy named Peter who was an apostle. You all know Peter very well, right? A quite outspoken character of the apostles who assisted Mark in writing this gospel. Mark has had his name appended to the uh, book for uh, all these years and centuries, but he got his information from Peter. We can read this gospel almost like it's Peter's gospel. We might ask, though, why didn't Peter just write it himself? I'll let you ask Peter when we get to glory that question. Or better yet, you can ask the Lord why he inspired these words through Mark and not Peter. It was the Lord's decision to do it this way, and we praise the Lord for the 16 chapters that we hold in our hands, as epic as they are. It's interesting to note, too, Peter is the source, because it seems to come out in the book, if you're looking for it, uh, there is a great focus in Mark on the last few days of Jesus' life before the cross, his trial, and resurrection. Almost a third of the book is devoted to the final days of Jesus' life. And we know in those days, Peter is particularly vocal and present in some of the stories that we know well in those days. 
Um, also, if you go to Acts chapter 10, who, we were there like a year ago, right? Uh, and you read Peter's sermon in Caesarea, Peter preaches to these folks in an interesting way. He, he's going to share the gospel with them. Where would you start if you're going to share the gospel with someone? Well, here's where Peter starts in Acts 10, verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Where does Peter begin with the gospel? John the Baptist. Where does Mark begin with the gospel? John the Baptist, right? So I think that is telling. A few other quick notes for context. I'm not going to do a whole sermon just on context. I want to get into the first few verses today. <clears throat> but I think it's important you know Mark was most likely written from Rome around mid-50s A.D. Most people believe Mark was the very first gospel written, followed closely by Matthew. Some debate there. Mark lived in Jerusalem. He was most likely the owner of a home that the apostles often met in, particularly in the book of Acts, with his mom, whose name was Mary, lived in her basement, I don't know, uh, but lived there. You can see that in Acts chapter 12. He was also Barnabas's cousin, a big guy in the book of Acts, accompanied Paul on missionary journeys until they parted ways in Acts chapter 15 through disagreements, unknown disagreements. But they decided to uh, separate. Paul did not give up on Mark, though. And in 2 Timothy, toward the end of that letter, he tells us that he considers Mark very useful for ministry. While the purpose of Mark's gospel really is the same as all the other gospels, there is a unique invitation here to the reader to follow Jesus as Lord, as the one true Son of God. We see the cost of discipleship in this book. There are those who follow Jesus and those who reject Jesus. There's no in-between. Mark also shows us that Jesus is not just looking for people to follow his rules, but for people to love him, for people to have a relationship with him, for people to take up their cross and become one with him. We will fail the Lord, but in this unique relationship with Christ, he will never fail us. The Lord never failed Peter after denying him three times. The Lord never failed Mark after separating from the missionary journeys. We must follow the Lord, but even more so, he calls us to love him. And lastly, I'll say that Mark is just not as widely preached as the other Gospels are. I'm guilty. Second book I ever preached at Main Street was the Gospel of John, right? Because it's the coolest one, obviously. But I heard an interview recently with Bart Barber, who's currently the Southern Baptist Convention president. He's preached through almost every single book of the Bible in his church, 24 years, of course, Wednesday nights and Sunday nights. You can go and see all those recordings. <clears throat> he just finished Leviticus. You know what book he hasn't preached through all the way? The Gospel of Mark. <laughs> it is just that shorter gospel that seems to be on everybody's back burner. Uh, not as detailed, it gets left behind. We don't need to be sleeping on Mark, though. In 2019, just to give you a story of testimony, <clears throat> I met this scrawny dude from Asheville who just moved down here with his wife. He wasn't too sure about Christianity. He wanted to believe Jesus was really the Son of God, but he didn't want to be deceived. He felt like somebody was lying to him. 
So I said, why don't we just sit down about once a week and let's just read Mark together. Over time, the message of Mark compelled him of Jesus' worthiness to be followed, and not only to be followed, but to be loved. And Aaron Hayes was baptized in October 2020. He and his wife read scripture for us this morning. He'll probably be preaching next year. I'm just kidding. But praise the Lord. We don't need to be sitting on the gospel of Mark, right? And isn't it amazing to think that if this was the first gospel written, that these were the very first words that were pushed out to hundreds of believers to hear the story of Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection. They would have read these things for the first time and were won over to the truth of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Regardless whether you think it's first or not, these words, like all the rest of Scripture, have been converting people to new life and washing sinners with the Holy Spirit since the day they were written, which is the Lord's intention in giving us His Word to change us, to transform us. And His Word is still working to transform hearts here in Spindale, North Carolina. Who knows what the Lord may do as we hear from this book over the next several weeks and months. I pray that we look to them optimistically, with joy, and with prayer. My hope for us is that we would be compelled to follow Jesus, and not just to follow Jesus, but to love him. So where does the gospel begin? Mark says it begins with a prophet. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Mark says the beginning of the gospel was a long, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Isn't it interesting that he says this is the beginning of the gospel, and then he says let's go back 600 years to Isaiah. You think he's going to talk about Jesus' birth, Right? That's what the other guys do. Matthew begins first with a genealogy from Abraham to Jesus and then tells us about the birth of Christ. Luke gives us a formal introduction, and then he starts with Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. John, of course, he's doing his own thing. He's off, you know, over here saying this epic theological prologue about before the world even began, right? And that's how he starts his gospel, but then he goes to John the Baptist. And Mark stands out from the others in that he begins not with genealogy, not with a great theological prologue, but he begins with prophecy. Prophecy. And remember, the word gospel means good news, euangelion, where we get our word evangelical. Uh, Mark is saying the good news about Jesus Christ is an Old Testament promise. The good news about Jesus Christ is an Old Testament promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of good news prophesied by Isaiah. What's the good news that Isaiah wrote down? Behold, I send my messenger who will go before your face. Y'all, we're in crisis mode. I just picked up the last cough drop. Anybody want to serve your preacher, bring more cough drops next week. Ricolas are a little bit partial. They're the best. <clears throat> the good news that Isaiah wrote down is that the Lord was coming. 
prepare yourself. A messenger is going to come before our faces who will prepare the way for his arrival. A voice will cry out, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The good news is that God is coming. Get ready for his arrival. And before we even get into the ministry of John the Baptist, the most important pronoun in Isaiah's text is I, as in God. I, God, will send my messenger. God will announce his own arrival. God will send his son. What is the Old Testament about? What's the whole Bible about? God's sovereign plan to save his people by sending his son. The whole Bible points us to the coming and the atonement of Jesus Christ. All scripture is like the ministry of John the Baptist. It is shouting from the rooftops that Christ is coming and Christ alone will save. Mark wants to make that utterly clear at the beginning of this record. This is the coming of the long-expected Jesus. This is the fulfillment not only of Isaiah's prophecy, but of all the prophets. His arrival will make glorious the way of the sea. Does that one sound familiar? The land of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is the one who will crush the serpent's head from Genesis 3 and deliver Adam's race. This is the one who would redeem and rescue his brothers like Joseph, even though they did evil to him. This is the one who would go silently like a lamb to the slaughter and open not his mouth. This is the one who would be pierced in his hands and feet and have his own clothing divided before him. This is the Excuse me, this is the one who would sit at the right hand of the Lord forever, the offspring of David, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the one who would judge the nations in righteousness and scatter his foes until all enemies are made a footstool for his feet. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Son of God has come. Just a thought for you to ponder. Do you know your Bible well enough that if you were alive when Christ had come, that you would have said, there he is. That's got to be him. Every prophecy fulfilled. Of course, Christ came in an unexpected manner, not the warrior they were anticipating. But every single prophecy was fulfilled in his life. Would you have seen them? I would challenge you to make 2024 the year where you finally get serious about reading the Bible. And not just reading it because you want to read it or you want to check it off, but you want to know what it says. Like, do you know what the Bible says? Or do you just know what people say about the Bible? Do you know what your preachers say about the Bible? Do you know what YouTube says about the Bible? Or do you know the Bible? Do you know what the Bible says? We're just two weeks into reading the New Testament now. We read a little bit of Matthew 11, right? So you got that out of the way. Check for this coming week, right? Um, we're just two weeks in, five chapters a week. One idea I would give to you, buy a fresh new Bible, right? Hot off the press, sticky pages, and um, go through the New Testament this year. And anytime you see a reference to the Old Testament, highlight it or write it down, or go back and read that in Old Testament context and study it, and then you'll have a Bible that has highlighted all of the Old Testament references in the New Testament. And you'll use the New Testament to actually understand the Old Testament better <clears throat> this year. Just an idea.
We want to see Christ throughout all the pages of Scripture. Um, Dr. Gendry, uh, the director of the association who just retired, one thing he would often say is that it was his goal for the Scriptures to be like background noise in his head, just sort of always playing, always pondering, always thinking, always before his mind. Make it your goal to know the Scriptures for yourself. Well, what is Isaiah prophesying? There's this messenger who would come before Christ comes, before Jesus. There's a few surprising pieces to this prophecy. First, this messenger is going to cry out in the wilderness. It's a strange place to start a new ministry. Um, you know, we're pretty rural here, but there's more rural places than... We got people here, right? Where are the people at in the wilderness? Not a lot of pastors around here saying, you know what? I'm going to plant a brand new church in Golden Valley. I'm going to plant a church in Kayser. I'm going to plant a church in Caroline, right? Because it doesn't seem profitable. Who's going to come hear me preach? Who's out there in the desert? Why didn't John the Baptist march into Jerusalem with a megaphone, you know, at the, at the abortion clinic and say, repent, right? He's out there in the wilderness letting people come to him. It's interesting, isn't it? The fact that all these people from Jerusalem and Judea willingly go to the middle of nowhere to be baptized is further validation of this promise. This is the prophecy that this would take place in the wilderness. This is not the big ne next big thing in downtown. This is what God ordained, and there's further evidence of that. And what's the messenger saying? He's saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. In other words, let every heart prepare him room. All who are crooked need to get straight before he comes. Straighten up. The Lord is coming to town. And we'll see in a minute that many indeed will come confessing their sins and publicly repenting in the Jordan River. We say, why is this warning here? Why didn't Jesus just sort of come, like ready or not, right? No warm-up, no messenger, no flag-waving, just just come. Well, it seems that self-reflection is a necessary precursor to embracing the gospel. Self-reflection is a necessary precursor to embracing the gospel. The Lord wants you and me to examine our hearts before we can ever be grateful for this good news. We have to see bad news inwardly before we can see good news outwardly. The promise, of course, of Elijah's return, which is what we see being fulfilled here, was one not just of like happy singing, dancing time. It was fire and brimstone. Who can stand it? We just read in Malachi, right? I mean, he was. He was who, who told you to come down here, you brood of vipers? Uh, to, to, to flee from the wrath to come. That, that was his message, right? Uh, particularly to the religious leaders. John came to preach repentance. How can we repent if we see no sin to repent of? How can we confess if we feel no guilt that needs to be confessed? It's not that we are called to fix ourselves before we come to Jesus. John came so that we could see we need to be fixed, and that's what Jesus does. You know, how many people have you heard say, 
like, I'm going to get right with God right after I stop doing all these things, right? Give me some time. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to quit messing around with women or I'm going to, you know, lay off the drugs and then I'll go to church and then I'll, you know, start off right. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way, right? It'll never happen because Jesus does the fixing. Why why are people trying to take Jesus' work away from him? Jesus does it. Come to Christ, but see your need of him. See your need of Christ. Only Jesus can make straight what we have made crooked, and we need to examine ourselves truly in order to embrace the free gift of grace and the good news of Jesus Christ, which is why we take time to examine our hearts every Sunday, don't we? Before we start our service with our moment of silence, a call to worship, um, <clears throat> when we take the Lord's Supper, we have an extended time to just look at our hearts and look at the sin that is there and, and just be all the more grateful that Christ bled and died for it all. And then we can appreciate the good news that has come. The beginning of the gospel points us to the sovereign plan of God to prepare us for the coming of his son, to have our sins washed away. Mark says the the beginning of the gospel is a prophet, and secondly, a revelation. A revelation. Verse 4, what is the revelation? John appeared. John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. What was John doing since the day he was born, right? We read the story in Luke, Zechariah. What's been happening since then? Well, after we ask Peter why he didn't write a gospel, then we can ask John where he was during that time, right? Because I don't know, but apparently he's been hiding out in the wilderness waiting for just the right time to appear, to reveal himself, and appear he did. The text reads as though there was a movement happening out in the wilderness. This was a great commotion. Word was spreading throughout Judea. People were flocking to the Jordan to hear this wild man preach. This was all part of preparing the way. It was not just warming the waters for Jesus. It was preaching the forgiveness of sins through Jesus and Jesus alone. John was initiating something new altogether. And that's why it's so poignant that this would take place in the wilderness. If you recall, the wilderness has a pretty storied past, the people of Israel, doesn't it? This is where God called his people out of slavery from Egypt to a new land that he was giving them. He made a covenant with them to be their God and they his people. He led them by a pillar of fire and smoke, fed them manna from heaven, and never let a single sandal wear out on their feet. And what reward lied just ahead beyond the Jordan? On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. What is it? The promised land. The promised land, right? Here is the Exodus 2.0. Here is John out in the wilderness dunking people left and right in the Jordan River, the same river that was once crossed to obtain salvation and freedom, All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out, leaving Jerusalem, back out to the wilderness to be baptized, to go through the waters again, confessing their sins. They weren't going to the temple. They weren't going to a house made by hands. 
They were leaving the territory of all that was familiar and comfortable to obtain something new, something greater than what the law could achieve. The law couldn't save them. The law couldn't forgive them of their sins. They're going out of the world. This guy says our sins can be forgiven. We can be washed. They're going. They're going out there. This was an exodus not from Egypt, but an exodus from the bondage of sin. And from the very beginning of this, Jesus is showing himself to be the great high priest, the new temple, the only mediator between God and man. Who can forgive sins but God alone? God alone. Jesus. And God has come in the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Repent, confess your sins, and he will save you. Salvation would come not inside the holy city, but outside. Jesus was crucified not inside the holy city, but outside in Golgotha, right? Which was required. And when he was crucified, the holy of holies curtain was torn into. Something new is happening. Something new's here. Of course, we're all a bit distracted, though, by verse 6 aren't we? Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Well, <clears throat> who is this guy clothed in camel's hair? When I was in high school, we had this yearly event called History Day. I think it was 10th or 11th grade uh, that participated, and you got to dress up as an historic figure and sort of live in the time, uh, give a whole spiel about your person. I wanted to be John the Baptist. Teacher said no. I guess it was the wrong time period or something. So I settled on Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> but I really wish I could have got some pictures of 16-year-old Dale dressed up as John the Baptist. Close enough, right? Emancipation, freedom, baptism, I don't know. Maybe there's a sermon illustration there for another day. But the clothing listed here is further validation of the prophecy fulfilled. Second Kings chapter 1 tells us what Elijah wore himself. Camel skins or uh, coats of hair and a leather belt. It was a nomadic kind of dress often worn by desert dwellers. It's not like he was the only person who dressed like this. But the diet of honey and locusts also points us to a life of general poverty and lowliness. He was a hunter-gatherer before that kind of thing was cool. People were looking for Elijah's return. And then wham! There's this guy out in the wilderness preaching repentance who's dressed like Elijah. It's like history day. We read Matthew 11 this morning, which Jesus explicitly tells us, this is Elijah's return. This is the one who has come to purify and refine the sons of Levi. It's him, if you have ears to hear it. It's him. And one thing that stands out in all of this is the Lord's perfect timing. None of this was coincidental. None of this was haphazard. None of this was random. At just the right time, John appeared. This was a big deal. This is the one who had to start running at the right pace in order to pass the baton to Jesus, who would also appear at just the right time. The Lord is orchestrating, right, the brass and the, the, uh, the strings and the, the different pieces here. John, 
Now it's your turn, all right? Now Jesus comes. God is sovereignly orchestrating the timing of his redemption from prophecy to fulfillment to the second coming. All of history belongs to him. And how ironic is it that so many of us are worried about tomorrow? Right? The Lord holds every day of 2024 in his hands. There's not a single day that he won't know about or be prepared for. There's not one event that will take place this year that will catch the Lord by surprise. He will make no mistakes this year. He will have no accidents this year. He has no resolutions because he's unchanging. All that the Lord wills to be will be. But we ask, when will my loved one repent? When will I get a different job? When will I find a better place to live? When will I meet someone? When will I have to say goodbye to my parents, my grandparents, for the last time? We have a life full of wins, don't we? W-H-E-N. And young people, your life is really full of wins. And there's a lot of things that you could choose to worry about tomorrow or 10 years from now or 20 years from now. I would exhort you to not be ruled by those things. Instead, to pray about those things and to find peace in the sovereign plan of the Lord. At just the right time, he makes all things come to fruition for his glory and for your good. Kind of like the question I asked earlier about if you were there, right? Another question. Let's say you were there when John the Baptist was preaching. Would you have left Jerusalem? Would you have left all that was familiar and comfortable and uh, well-known to go out to this wild man in the desert who says that the Messiah is here and he's going to take away sins? I'm not just saying that it's outrageous. I'm saying that it's costly. It would have been a costly thing to do, to renounce all that was familiar in Judaism here and to say that this is real, this is here, something new has come. That's going to be a major theme in Mark's gospel. We're invited to follow and love Jesus with all that we have, but it will cost us everything. Would you leave all behind to see your sins washed away? Do you find this Savior to be more precious and a greater treasure than anything you've encountered before? Only those who see him as worthy will leave it all behind. Do you see him as worthy? Would you gain the world to lose your soul, or would you gain everything in Christ and lose the world? What has following Jesus cost you so far? Has it been worth it? I'd invite you to ponder that question throughout the series of Mark. Well, the gospel begins with a prophet, a revelation, and finally, a message. A message. What was John preaching at the end of all this? Verse 7. He preached, saying, After me... Comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down 
and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He preached. Let's not forget John the Baptist was a preacher. He's a preacher. Mariana said, now that I'm, I've got a bald head, I've got to have one of those hankies for my sweat. I go like this, right? <clears throat> he was a preacher. Not that kind of preacher, though. Let's not forget, though, that preaching is a method chosen by God to deliver infallible words through fallen men. And when those infallible words are declared to other fallen men with a call to respond to this revelation from God, God saves those fallen men and reconciles them to their maker. His word is powerful, and preaching is the right accompaniment of his word. The focal point of John's preaching was not just get right with God, but he who is coming is way bigger than me, way mightier, way stronger than I am. John's ministry existed to put all eyes on Jesus. John was not a look-at-me preacher. John was a nobody. He was a voice, literally, like no face, no, right? Just a voice crying out of the wilderness. He's nothing. John was the best man pointing to the groom. John must decrease. Jesus must increase. John says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes, which was a, a customary habit of servants toward masters. He says, I'm not even worthy to be a servant, let alone to preach about him. John has been an inspiration to preachers for centuries, and you who aspire to preach and teach the Bible, take this example to heart. There are three kinds of preaching, really. Preaching that says, look how holy I am. Look how great we are. Or look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. This is why we put so much emphasis on the Word and on Christ in our Sunday services. God has not chosen a 10-step program or a list of do's and don'ts or a feel-good kind of pep talk. God has chosen Christ-exalting preaching as the method for life transformation. And that's what our elders are committed to here, and that's what I think you guys are also committed to here. I pray that we will keep that commitment and that desire for the word and for Christ-exalting preaching would never change and never fade. Amen? Notice the result of Christ-exalting preaching. He says, John, me, I'll baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. John couldn't do that. Only Jesus can do this kind of baptism. Water's good for cleaning the outside, right? You wash your car, you wash your dishes, you use water, it works, right? Gets the dirt off. But there's something on the inside that has to be washed. And, and, and the, even the water of the Jordan River wasn't able to do that, right? There's a washing of the Holy Spirit that has to take place. And this is something that only Jesus can provide. Baptism, the word baptism, Lord willing, we'll talk about baptism next week because Jesus is about to get baptized, right? 
it is literally the Greek word immerse. It means to wash, to cleanse, to get dunked. But the thrust of it is beyond getting dunked. This is about the only way that anyone can have their sins washed away, forgiven, and made new. We need the Holy Spirit of God to give us new hearts. And this is something only Jesus can do. Jesus can wash us. Jesus forgives us. Jesus gives us the Spirit to keep us from sin. And this is just the beginning of the gospel. How would Jesus accomplish this? How would Jesus wash our hearts through the Holy Spirit? Well, we got 16 chapters to find out just how Jesus would do that. And I don't want to spoil it for you. But let me give you a quick summary. The one who was mightier than John, whose sandals he was unworthy to untie, this Messiah would become a servant himself. For though he was God in the flesh, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He looked he, he took on the form of a servant. He emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This mighty Savior would become the servant of all. The one worthy of all our worship and service would stoop down to our level to spiritually untie our own shoes. He lived a perfect, sinless life, having nothing to be baptized from. And yet he bore the sins of the world on the cross so that we could be forgiven, washed, cleansed by his blood. And then he rose from the dead. That's the last chapter. And it's good. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death and hell and the grave. We sing about it mightily just this morning. We sing about it every week. It's so significant that Jesus rose from the dead because all who call upon him as the living God, Lord, Master, King, will have their sins washed away. That's the message that we will get to cherish together throughout the Gospel of Mark. It's the message of the entire Bible. And the good news is that you don't have to wait until the end of this book to follow Jesus and to love Jesus. Sin will never satisfy. Hear the words of John the Baptist. Prepare the way of the Lord. Confess your sins Look to Christ for salvation. Resign all the follies of sin. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and love the Lord Jesus with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this news that is indeed very good. Thank you for washing our sins whiter than snow. Oh, Lord Jesus, if our lips would say that we love you, it's only because you loved us first and purchased our pardon on Calvary's tree. Oh, I pray that you would bless 
the preaching of your word over the next several weeks and months, and that lives would be changed by these precious words. Have your way and your will. Let your word do the work here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.